All right, what's your favorite movie series? Not your favorite movie, that might be different. Your favorite movie series, right? For some of you, you're old school. You're like, I love the Godfather series, right? You love Rambo. You love Rocky, okay? Two of you like the Fast and the Furious series, right? I mean, (laughs) how many of those do we need, guys? If you're like my wife, she loves the Born trilogy. Remember those? I'm waiting for the new Christian one, Born Again, <laughs> starring, Jim, starring Jim Caviezel and Kirk Cameron. I have a vision for it. My kids love Harry Potter. They fight over which one to watch, number one or number seven or seven part one or seven part two uh, or the Avengers series. But come on, let's just, let's just admit it. We know what the best movie series ever is. Mission Impossible. <laughs> Obviously, and not just because I have a man crush on Tom Cruise. I know, he's a Scientologist, not that part, okay? He does his own stunts, and guys, every Mission Impossible, how does it start out? Like you just, you, whether you're sitting in the theater or you're watching it on your TV, you're like, get ready, because this opening scene is going to be epic. Well, guys, in Joshua 2, it's an epic opening scene. Amen. It's a spy movie. Amen. And what's interesting is in Joshua, if Joshua chapter one is all about inspiration, Joshua chapter two is all about investigation. Joshua chapter two is the sending out of the spies because the first thing God told Joshua to do in chapter one is be courageous. And the first thing Joshua does in chapter two is take a risk. And I just wanna tell you where we're heading today. I'm gonna ask you to be a person who takes risks. I'm gonna ask you, I'm, gonna, I'm kidding myself to be somebody, here's our hope for our church, that would you take personal risks to bring Christ to every relationship? Would you take, you and your family, personal risks, and we'll talk about what that means, to bring Christ to every relationship, because that's the way the gospel goes forward. Here, I'll show you this. Let, let's start out the story. Turn with me to Joshua chapter two, verse one. Look, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and whenever they use his full name, they're usually kind of like starting a new story. If they just say Joshua, we're normally in the middle of a story. If, if they use his full name, they're starting or ending a story, okay? Look at this, sent two men secretly from, how do you say that word? I looked it up twice, it's Shittim, okay? <laughs> I double checked it before I said it publicly. Sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies. I know what you're thinking, that sounds like a dumpy place, all right? <laughs> you're like, that's a place you wanna get out of, absolutely. That sounds like the wilderness. Okay, look, he, he sends these spies, okay? And, and here's the whole thing. We're gonna, we don't even get their names. Now, there's some urban legend. There's some Jewish tradition. Some people think one of the spies is Caleb, that, that Joshua honors Caleb, his good friend from the past, and says, you went last time. You're gonna go again. You're a person of faith. We don't know. In fact, I think the point of the story is Joshua is not the main character. He is the main character outside of God in almost every chapter of Joshua except this one. And even the spies, it would be great to get their names. We got all the names of the spies last time. Why don't we get their names this time? Because this story is actually more about Rahab than it is about the spies. There are two types of risks that you can take, and they're both shown in this chapter, and I believe, that's why I believe this chapter is primarily here to motivate us to take risks, and that risk is one of the signs of true Christian faith. Let me give you the two. There is a going risk, and there is the welcoming risk. There is the risk of the spies, and there is the risk of Rahab, right? What is the going risk? It's the sending. It's the leaving. It's the, we need to go to new places to reach new people. This happens every time we send missionaries. This happens every time we plant a church. This time, this time, this happens every time you leave what is comfortable and convenient for what is uncomfortable. For, you leave what is known for what is unknown. And who tends to lead in the going risking in the church? Men. Historically, Biblically, globally, men tend to lead in that. That gets a small part of the story. It's an important part of the story. But Rahab gets the bigger part of the story. Rahab is the welcoming risk, okay? Who leads in all of the welcoming risks throughout all of church history? 
women, right? Anytime like the hospitable spirits, the we could make room and we should have them over is the spirit of risk from a woman to say, I'd like to welcome someone into my life. Now I've not talked about this a lot, but my family recently in the last year, we got into the foster care system and we were respite foster care parents. Do you think that was my idea? I mean, my son, my youngest son just turned six. Life was just about to get really easy, kind of. I don't need to constantly worry about my kids all the time. And then my wife said, I've got a heart to foster. And I'm like, why? <laughs> she said, we've got a big enough house. We could have another person. She said, we could do it. She said, let's just start. And we'll just take the kids on the weekend. I'm like, the weekends? It's the spirit that women have. It's that welcoming spirit. Have you ever talked to somebody who adopts? It's in, we, we have many families in our church who adopt. But I, I mean, we're all real talk here, right? Honestly, it's like adoption is scary for lots of reasons. And one is if, if anybody's thinking about it, they're like, well, what happens when I welcome this person into my life? Do they have medical needs that I won't know about? Did some trauma happen in their life that we're gonna find out in five years? Are they gonna hurt one of my kids? Are we gonna mess up the birth order? What's going to happen? This is a risk. But guys, we have to risk. Let me tell you, why do we risk? Well, I'm gonna root this theologically. I always wanna talk in here. It's like, you could, we could talk anywhere about risk. You could hear a TED talk on risk. Let me root this theologically. Why do we risk? We risk because God can't. Because what is risk about? Risk is about two things, the future and not knowing it and the potential for loss. So when, when God sends Jesus Christ into the world and he's gonna be suffer, he's gonna suffer, be rejected, be betrayed, be crucified, was that a risk? The answer is no, because God knows the future. It's not a risk, it's called a sacrifice. And so God knows the future. And, uh, and listen, when you think about the future, do not think about the future apart from the grace of God. That's part of why people are anxious. They think about the future apart from the grace of God. In going and welcoming, you say, God is good. I'm gonna take a calculated risk and I believe the best thing is gonna happen when I risk for God ultimately. But let me tell you why you have to take risks. Because we were meant to take risks. Do you know that kids get bored on playgrounds that aren't dangerous enough? Like when they design playgrounds, they have to decide like how, we have, they have to make it, have you ever like taken your kid to a boring playground? I've done this before and like Elon's like hanging upside down on the slide. I'm like, get off of that. Why is he doing that? Because it's too boring. So he needs to create a little bit of danger in his own life. I'm wondering if some of your problems, some of them are because you're bored. I mean, I think a bored man, whoo, have you ever met a bored man? He is dangerous. This is why, for the most part, is there some universe in which maybe, potentially, possibly, a guy could be a stay-at-home dad? <sighs> maybe. That's my best answer. Because I've seen this, you know. Uh, men get bored, and then they start looking at things they shouldn't. And then they start partaking in things just to feel but I'm not just picking on the men, right? Have you ever met bored women? There's lots of them in this city, right? Especially as they get older. They drink too much, they shop too much, they're too worried about everybody, what everybody else is doing. God didn't create us to be bored. And, and there's, there's everything, I mean, the story of scripture is people take risks and the reward is on the other side of risk. And you know, if you read any book on risk, it says this, always take a risk where the upside's better than the downside. Well, that makes sense. Isn't that every risk we take for Christ? Guys, we don't risk because we're not adrenaline junkies. Like I started following this guy on Instagram. 
he climbs skyscrapers without a rope. Every time his post comes up on Instagram, my hands start to sweat. Just looking at it, I'm like, why are you doing this? I can't look away, you know? We don't risk because for the sake of risk. We don't risk because we're naive and we think nothing bad could happen. We risk because we love people. And I want to show you this. I want to show you what happens here. So they send out, they risk. Let's continue on. We're in verse, uh, he tells them to go see the land. And then look what happens. Look, look at the end of verse one. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and they lodged there, okay? Now back then, there, as you know, there wasn't Airbnb, right? There wasn't Verbo. They go into this land and you got to ask this question and you're supposed to. Why are they at a prostitute's house? I mean, this is an earthy story. This, this is a story that's hard for religious people because we're gonna get, she's gonna lie. She's gonna hide things. It's gonna get and very interesting. There's a moral complexity to this story that doesn't fit well in a lot of our categories. And the first thing that shows up is why are two godly Israelite men in a brothel? Well, the conservative fundamental view has been this. And I think it's probably right. They were looking for a place to hide. And where's the last place that you would look to find godly Israelite men? A brothel. And again, in the text, and that's all we have, and that's all we need. But we're not told anything inappropriate happened. But one of my rules when I read the text is I always like to go with the harder reading of Scripture because it's probably the true meaning. Like, is it possible that these guys had a little mission drift, a little mission creep? You ever been tempted when you travel? All of a sudden, you're outside and you're all alone and they were buddies and maybe they both said, let's just try this out. No one will ever know. Who knows? Here's the principle. There is temptation in Canaan. And there's temptation on the mission field. I've told you the story before. I knew a missionary, he went to Thailand. And if you know kind of all the prostitution in Thailand and all that happens in Thailand, uh, a missionary went to Thailand, he came back, he, he, told, he didn't do anything wrong. He just told his church, I can never go to Thailand again. There's too much temptation there. These men end up in, in, this, in this prostitute's house. Her name's Rahab. And, uh, and the first thing she does is she practices hospitality. By the way, this is the welcoming spirit. She is, for the church, Throughout history, Rahab, among others, she's not the first. Abraham also in the Old Testament practiced hospitality. She's a picture of hospitality. Here's what hospitality is. Welcoming the stranger. So Christians are confused because Christians think that fellowship and hospitality are the same thing. They're different. They're connected. Fellowship, so you have your Christian friends over and you play games and you hang out and you watch a movie and you eat a meal and you go over to their house or whatever and you're all friends and you hang out together. Amazing, biblical. It's not called hospitality. It's called fellowship. Hospitality is when you welcome the stranger into your home. It could be the stranger, it could be your Christian brother or sister whom you don't know, but you'd like to get to know better. But they're a stranger, but by coming to your home, they'll go, the stranger will go from, well, it'll go, it'll go from hospitality to fellowship over time. Or even more common, it's, it's the person who's far from God and close to you. They're a stranger to God. And what we're seeing, and, I, and I'm always watching what's happening in Canada, Australia, and Europe, right, with the church, because I, I don't know if this is for sure, but Canada feels like 10 years ahead of us in Australia, maybe 20, in Europe, maybe 30 years ahead of us. And what we're finding out there is that uh, the main way the mission of God is going forward is through hospitality. It's through Christians inviting their non-Christian friends and neighbors and family members into their home and sharing their lives with them. And in the, in the midst of sharing their lives, not having an agenda, just asking good questions, the gospel, Christianity, spirituality comes up and that's how the mission moves forward. Because think about this, most people in Winston-Salem will never come to church. And that becomes more and more true the more post-Christian you get. Like imagine if you moved to Dubai 
Okay, so you're moving to Dubai. Say you're not religious. You're not Christian, you're not non-Christian. You just moved to Dubai. There's a mosque next door to you. Are you gonna go to the mosque? What if the pastor is funny, he's a good preacher and they're doing a marriage series? What if they've got great music? What if they've got a cool kids ministry? It's like, you're not going. You've just made decisions about what a mosque is and how you think about it and you're just, would you go to a Muslim's house if they invited you over for dinner that you were friends with? Yes, you would. The reason that we don't practice hospitality, there's many reasons. One, we're not home. You minister out of margin. You do mission out of margin, right? Most of us, we're just not, never home. We travel, we're busy, our kids are playing sports five nights a week. It's like, I don't even know the answer to all these questions because it's hard. You know, right, you're like, you're, I got five nights this week. We only have two nights free. I need to have a date. And I, I get it, it's all complex. The average family, they tell us now, only eats four meals a week together. There's 21 meals a week to be had. The average American family eats four. 80% of American workers never eat lunch with anyone else. There's a new phrase called desktop dining where people just take 15 to 20 minutes to eat at their desk. And, and I think we live in a time where we're just very lonely. I was reading a book on counseling and it said, the guy said, about half the people who come in and think they're depressed are really lonely. Isn't that interesting? They try to diagnose, it's like, dude, you're not, here's what depression is, that's not you. You're lonely. What would it look like for you to invite someone over one meal a month? There's 84 meals a month. Could you one meal a month have somebody in your home who's far from God, close to you? You don't have an agenda. That's what's scary. You're like, I don't know. No, no, no. I just, I believe God's at work in people's lives. I believe there's a reason we have a relationship. All I want to do is have you over, have no agenda, share my life. And here's the key. And this is another reason people, people don't have married, some people don't have, maybe some of you, you don't have good relational skills. There's people all the time, what would I do? What would we talk about? It's like, learn how to ask 10 good questions and that'll, that'll just be great. People love to talk about themselves. Learn to ask a great question and listen. I think one of the other main reasons is we tend to view our house not as a catalyst for ministry, but as a castle to where we escape, right? It's like, get me in my garage, let me hit my button. I don't even want it. The only thing I know about my neighbors is the stickers on the back of their car. Okay, they got three kids and a dog. Okay, that's all I know. <laughs> so she practices hospitality, but guys, it gets really interesting. Here we go, check this out. Verse two, and it was told to the king of Jericho, we're not sure how he hears. Behold, the men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who've come to you, who entered your house for they've come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and she had hidden them. So focus on that, okay, watch this. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I do not know where they are from, where they were from. Lie number one. <laughs> and when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out, I do not know where they went. Lie number two and three. Pursue them quickly for you will overtake them. Lie number four. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them in stalks of flax. Some of you will be glad to know those are gluten free. Okay? <laughs> True story. That she had laid in order on, uh, on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. What an interesting, morally complex story. Here's what's interesting. She hides them. She lies about them. She's praised for doing it. Very similar to the midwives. Remember when the midwives, uh, the Pharaoh says, I want you to kill all the uh, males. And they say, 
we can't do that because actually the women have the baby so quickly. And that was a lie. And the next verse after they lie, it says, and God bless them. You're like, could you put that verse a little later so that I maybe won't connect it with the line? Right? This is a morally complex story. Let's take it apart together. First of all, what does she do? She hides and she lies. How does she know how to hide and lie? Those are the two things she got very good at while being a prostitute. Because what do prostitutes do? They lie all the time. They tell men they're good looking when they're not. They tell, they tell people they're enjoying something when they're not. They lie to themselves. They lie to everybody they know about what they do. And what is the number one thing you have to be good at if you're a prostitute? You have to be able to hide men. If you're running a brothel, you have to learn how to get men in and out of places. So wait a second. This is, like, this is where you're like, okay, so God uses the very thing she was using for evil in the past. God's now going to use them for good. Amen. Amen. It's something like this. God uses you where you are with what you have. I'm not, I'm not justifying the lying. We'll get to that in a minute. But what are the, sometimes you'll wake up and you're like, man, I learned all these skills and I have all these gifts and I have all these talents. And sometimes you look at a part of your life, you're like, and I used it all for negative, right? I used my relational skills to manipulate women. Okay, well, don't do that anymore. I'd be using it negatively. <laughs> or you could say, well, uh, some, a lot of people use their, their gifts neutrally. They just don't use them for the kingdom of God. Some of you, you, you are just so relational and you're great at sales and you've never thought, maybe I should use this winsome relational skill set I have to share the gospel with other people. Maybe this is part of how God's given me the gift of evangelism. There are just some people, some of you just know how to make an enormous amount of money, you know? It's like a superpower. Because, you know, every, we all know it's not easy to make money. And there are just some people, it just you just beat them. You're like, oh my goodness, you just have the Midas touch. And maybe God's gonna use you not just to make a lot of money, but to be able to strategically and generously think about how to give it to the kingdom of God. Some people just have the mind of a strategic thinker. They swat analysis everything. They strategic plan out. They see the ups and downs and threats and opportunities of everything. But have you ever thought about it for the mission of God? See, with, with Rahab, God begins to redeem the darkest parts of her life. But what about lying? Like she lies four times. This isn't a white lie. She lies four times in the book of James, she's praised for it. It's the number one thing. It was the number one way she protected uh, the spies. Now, should you lie? The answer to that is no. I mean, come on guys. This is a fairly simple question. <laughs> You're all looking around. I don't know, should we, should we lie? <laughs> the answer is no. What have we been doing for six and a half years here, guys? No, you don't lie. Um, but here's what's interesting about this story. Um, so I, what's fun for me is on Mondays, I normally read the commentators, commentary. A commentary is just like a, a scholarly book on this text, usually written by someone who's not a pastor. Um, and you know, which is great. And I've learned a lot from them. But what I, what I realized is a lot of these guys live in ivory towers. They're not living in the real world. They're not pastors. They're not, they're not seeing the ups and downs of people's lives. They don't under, because by the way, the moral complexity that you feel is usually only when you're on the front lines. You know, you, you talk to somebody who's been at war. I mean, like you go to war and all you deal with the whole time you're there is the moral complexity of the situation that you're in. You know, and how should I do this? And is this war just? And should, you know, you, mess, you wrestle with all of that. Well, here's what happens when it comes, so here's what's happening in the story. There are two commands of God that appear that they cannot both be obeyed at the same time. 
What's the command? Tell the truth. Other command, protect innocent life, right? So there's two ways people answer this. Uh, the very kind of fundamentalist person says, well, actually what Rahab did was wrong. There's always a third way. There's, you never would have to break one of God's commandments. He would never put you in a situation where you'd have to break it. And I'm sympathetic to that because it's nice and clean, right? And it makes you feel like, great, this is good. There's a, I got a category for everything. Everything's in its place. But then you have the other you know, way to think about this is that every once in a while in a broken, fallen, sinful, rebellious world, a world that we're living in, which is not the way God originally designed it, every once in a while, normally when you're on the frontline missions, you have two conflicting absolutes. And you have to decide what is the greater moral imperative in that moment, right? So if, if uh, you were hiding Jews in your house in Germany and the Nazis came to your door and they said, are you hiding Jews? I'm guessing you're gonna lie. Now maybe afterwards you're like, do I repent of that lie or not? Was, it, was that okay? Is there a universe in which under a certain circumstance you should lie? I thought we're not supposed to. So, right. so, so here, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that great theologian, German, uh, you know, he, was, he, went to, he was in Germany and he was planning, he planned multiple times to try to assassinate Hitler. He was part of a group. He ended up being hung for this. He tried multiple times to assassinate Hitler. I'm summarizing all his things on this, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, I believe it is a sin to plan the assassination and kill Hitler, but I believe it is a greater sin to let him live. It's like, put that in your theological pipe and smoke it. I mean, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm like, what? Uh, my head hurts. Here, here, here's, what, here's what I think we need to learn, right? It's like, what, how, what does this mean for all of us? God works through sinners and God works through sin. Amen. I mean, God obviously works through sinners. Who else is he gonna work through? I mean, you know, we're, we're getting to the point now where it's like, okay, well, you know, Rahab isn't even a Christian yet, we'd say, until verse eight. We're not gonna see her believe. So is God using a Canaanite, unbelieving prostitute for his mission? Yes. Appears so. But then God works through sin. Now, God works through obedience. His revealed will is obey, and I'm gonna bless, and I'm gonna work through that. But when you look back in the rearview mirror of your life, you see God works through sin in some kind of, you're bigger than this. You're so great that you can move all of this together for our good and your glory. So, I mean, think about the story of Joseph. We're gonna look at that this summer, but the story of Joseph is a bunch of terrible things happen. And then he looks back at his brothers at the end, and he partly comforts them, which, by the way, this is comforting. Hey, you meant this for evil, and... That, would, that was throwing me in a well and lying about me and all the other things that you did. Like, but God meant it for good. And guys, this is how the world works. So I'll tell you, last week, a couple comes up to me uh, before or after one of the services. They're like, Pastor Kyle, I got a really cool story to tell you. I love it, tell it to me. And they said, well, this is crazy. They said, well, we were, we were visiting another church and we met this girl that we knew from the past who's a strong Christian. She said, we met him and her life, we hadn't seen her in a couple of years. Her life kind of, a lot of crazy things happened. And they said, well, first of all, she, uh, she started to date a non-Christian a couple years ago. Now, should a Christian date a non-Christian? No. Okay, so we'd say that was a sin. Um, then, then, you know, they got emotionally attached and they started having sex and they were sleeping with each other and she gets pregnant. Should you be sleeping around before you're married? No, that's also a sin. So then she gets, has the baby. She decides, thank God, to have the baby. She says to her boyfriend, we can't be dating anymore because I'm a Christian and I've just... I'm sorry what I've been doing, but like I've, this baby's woken me up to this. And he's like, well, 
what should I do? She goes, well, here's a Bible. <laughs> he starts reading the Bible. He comes to faith in Christ, gets baptized. They get married. They're now raising a godly child. Yeah, you know, and it's like, none of us really want that story, right? You want the, we were perfectly pure when we married on our 22nd birthday, you know? But it's like that, you know, that's the religious spirit that wants to act like everything's okay and everything's in neat categories and everybody has a clean life and God only works through my obedience. He doesn't work through my disobedience, you know? And, God, and so what we see is this powerful picture of, of God redeeming uh, the story of Rahab. Now, let me show you what happens next. So she tells this lie and then she runs up on the roof. Look at verse eight. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Here's what's interesting. Uh, the spies don't start a spiritual conversation with Rahab. Rahab has to have the spiritual conversation with the spies. Amen. I think this is a rebuke to the spies, right? This is very similar. If you know your New Testament, uh, there's a story where Peter, God, he gets this vision from God in Acts 10. Like, hey, go to Cornelius' house. And he goes to Cornelius' house. And if you read the, the text carefully, he doesn't share the gospel with Cornelius. You're like, this is the apostle Peter? the rock upon which Christ is gonna build the church. And he doesn't wanna share the gospel with this guy because he's Greek. And Cornelius has to ask him about God. And he goes, oh man, I'm summarizing. He goes, oh man, I'm so sorry. I thought, now I see that God can save anybody. I had in my mind a category of people God doesn't save. I don't know if this is how the spies thought. Oh man, God doesn't save. I mean, she's helpful, but God doesn't save prostitutes. You know, God doesn't work in these people's lives. And then she comes to them and she's a great picture. I'll just show you this for a few verses. She's a great picture of saving faith. Saving faith first realizes that God's going to judge and wants to be saved from the judgment of God. That's the heart of Christianity. Right. Now, yes, if you come to Christ, will your life get better? Maybe, I don't know. If you come to Christ, will your family come back together? I don't know, maybe. If you come to Christ, do you get a community? Yeah, the church is great. But the main reason you come to faith in Christ is you realize, I, can I remember, I remember being 16 years old, realizing, oh my goodness, I remember sitting in Spanish three class. 16 years old, realizing I am a sinner on my way to hell. It was through the faithful witness of a friend sharing the gospel with me. And I realized I'm, I'm in the path of the wrath of God and Christ died for my sins. And the cross is the place where Jesus paid my penalty and was my substitute. And this is exactly what she's saying. Basically, I know God is going to judge, right? Today, we don't believe in America often in a judging God. And by the way, that's just because we're so domesticated and so comfortable. It's actually harder technically to believe in a loving God than a judging God. Go, go over to where there's a dictator. Go over to where there's rape and pillaging. Go over to where there's injustice and believe me, people believe in a judging God there. In America, our lives are so comfortable and so easy that we just think, oh yeah, how could God ever judge anyone? But he's a loving God. He's a loving God and a judging God. And here's what she's, she puts her faith. Look what she puts her faith in. Look at verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. <clears throat> her faith is in historical events. That's exactly what our Christian faith is. Our Christian faith is not in principles or practices. <clears throat> it's not in faith itself. Like we don't have faith in faith. We don't have faith in feelings. <clears throat> it's not in a myth or a fairy tale or a fable. Our, our faith, if, just so you know, if you're new and you wanna understand Christianity, our faith is in historical events and what they mean. That's it. Like, so her faith was in 
the Red Sea, the drying up of the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, and what that said about God. So why don't, when you open up your New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. What are, what are those? You can think about it this way. The Gospels are the historical events you're supposed to believe in. The birth, the life, the teaching, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus would be a good summary of those four Gospels. So why, do, why did Paul write 13 letters? Like, don't we just need the Gospels? Why do we need 13 letters from Paul? Why do we need Hebrews? Why did Peter write some letters? Like, like why do we have these letters? It's because what we need is not just the events. We need the explanation of the events, the divine interpretation of the events, the meaning of the events. So you read about the events, you go, oh, Jesus had to live a perfect life because God wants a perfect record and I haven't lived a perfect life and Jesus is my perfection. Like guys, the people who stood at the cross and watched Jesus died, none of them understood it. Paul had to tell us, in Christ, the world was being reconciled to God. So what? Oh, Jesus Christ was my substitute. He was my perfection in his life and my punishment in his death. And the resurrection was God's two thumbs up to say, I have accepted the payment that my son has made on your behalf. And when you trust in him, you one day will go through death into life. So her, her faith is in these personal events. Well, then finally, she just makes a statement about God. Look at verse 11. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. And with that moment, and we'll see in a moment, she's gonna show her faith and works, but this is the end of her confession of faith. And Rahab comes to what we'd say, comes to faith in Christ, believes in Yahweh, that is how they would say it back then. And here's what I want us to see. Rahab is a picture that nobody is too far gone for God to save them. When, and I've learned this over the years, when you're talking to people who aren't Christians, there's large categories of people that you can talk to. Probably what's most common is the arrogant person who thinks they're fine how they are and doesn't think they need God. I mean, that's probably the average person who wins in Salem. Um, you know, they, they've got a trophy for everything they did their whole life. They've been told they're a snowflake their whole life. And they compare themselves to other people and so they feel good about themselves. And they, but they choose who they compare themselves to so they feel good about themselves. That's a whole type of person. That's not who this sermon's for. This sermon is for the people who feel like they're too far gone. Have you ever met those people? The people who feel like they're damaged goods. The people who feel like they're categorized by something they did or something that was done to them. So there's Rahab the prostitute. It could have been Rahab the divorced. Rahab the drunk. Rahab the abused, Rahab the angry mom, right? Joe the alcoholic. I mean, it's just like we have all of these different kind of identities. And, and <laughs> let me encourage you, if you feel some of this, you are not the worst thing you've ever done. Amen. That's, that, this is what people just, we live in this really kind of cancel culture where, right, you see this, you're like, these people, they, otherwise they live decent lives. And they did one or two, I'm not even justifying what they did. I'm not even thinking of one person. But somebody does something, it's like, well, that's what you're known for now. That's your last tweet. <laughs> you're right? And cancel, cancel, you're canceled and dead to all of us. And the number one thing we will talk about for the rest of your life is the one terrible thing you did. It's like, who wants to live under that? They say the number one thing about a totalitarian, a totalitarian government is a totalitarian government always reminds you you have a secret and we will find it out. And you better get in line because we will find out the worst thing you've ever done and we will tell everybody you know. And no one can live under that. 
And so when you get to heaven, if you ever want to see Rahab, because one of the, one of the tr Jewish traditions is that Rahab was one of the most beautiful women in the Old Testament. So maybe you get to heaven, I don't know how this works, and you say to yourself, I'd like to see her, <laughs> you know? There's going to be a long line for Abraham. There's going to be a long line for Jacob. You know, it's going to be several several hours, you know, <laughs> to meet Joseph. So you're like, okay, I'll, let's go down the hallway. Let's meet Rahab. And uh, you, I don't know how this works. And you go to the front desk, you know, and you say, you say, hey, I'm here and excited. I, I want to meet all the biblical characters. I really want to meet Rahab the prostitute. I think what would happen is they would look on their iPad or however they would up there and they would say something like, I'm sorry. Rahab the prostitute's not here. Rahab the righteous is here. Rahab the daughter of God is here. Rahab the forgiven is here. And see, what, what we're, we're going to take communion a little bit later this, uh, this morning, but what communion reminds us is that we can be more defined by what Christ has done for us Amen. than what we have done or other people have done to us. Amen. So then she ends up having this amazing statement of faith. But then let me show you just really quickly two ways her faith is shown. First, it's shown by caring about the spiritual condition of other people. Look here, verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. The first thing is she cares about the spiritual condition of other people. If she was only worried about herself, she would go with the spies right away, right? It's like, all right, let's sneak out. I'll go with you guys. I don't wanna be here when you come to ransack the city. Instead, she says, actually, I, need, I would like, I, I don't just wanna be saved. I wanna see other people be saved. Could, could you save my whole family? And see, here's what happens. I think, how do you know someone's been born again? They start to care about the spiritual condition of other people. So when I was in college ministry, all the time, I, and I was blessed to do it, I saw a lot of people come to faith in Christ in college ministry. Because that's a, that's a key time where God's working in people's lives. And, and I'd always wonder when they would tell me they came to Christ. I, I, you know, I don't try to be, what's the right word? Like, I'm not trying to be too pessimistic or anything or suspicious, but I'm always like, is it true? Did you really? Was it sincere? Do you really understand? But the moment that I knew somebody really came to faith in Christ was usually a week or two after they made a profession of faith, they began to care about people in their dorm. It's like a part of them was just like, I don't know how to talk about it except it was awoken. And, and they'll say something like, hey, I'm, I was looking in my dorm and like, I think I'm the only Christian. And there's 42 people on my hall and I think they're all headed to hell. And I've been praying for them and I'm particularly praying for my roommate and could you help me reach my roommate? It's like, oh dude, you are so spiritually alive. Because anybody, I mean, all you have to do is have a pulse to care about somebody's felt need. You have to be spiritually alive to, come, to see somebody's forever needs. But the second thing that, that they do, or the second thing that she does is she has a public outward sign of obedience. Look at this. Verse 15, then she let them down by the rope through the window for, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. And in verses 19 to 21, that's exactly what she does. She puts out the scarlet rope. And it, obviously this is a picture back to the Passover. 
where by faith, the parents or the people, they put the blood over the door to say, we believe. She's doing, she didn't have a, a lamb to do that. She's doing that with this scarlet rope. I, here's what this is. This is a first initial step of obedience that's noticed by others and symbolized. What do we have this today? This is baptism. We don't, we don't believe here that baptism saves you. The rope didn't save her. The rope was a sign that she was saved and that she did believe. Baptism is where you get it up in front of the church and in one sense, you get up in front of the world and you say, I follow Christ and I'm not heading back. I'm not heading in, I'm not going back into the world. I'm now fully following Christ. And over the next two weekends, if you've not been baptized, we'll talk about this at the end of the service. You'll, you can have an opportunity to do that and we would love to celebrate with you. So the story ends with, well, I guess you could say first there's Rahab's lie and then there's Rahab's truth, her confession. Uh, and then there's Rahab's changed life. And then finally, let's, let's end with the spies and I want you to see what happens here. Verse 22, they departed and they went into the hills and they remained there three days until the pursuers returned and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned, that's the spies, they came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Here's what they do. The story ends how it began. How does it end? With the spies back with Joshua and they're there to tell him a story. If you wanna ask the question, because I can, I can give you the question to ask, are you a person who takes risks? Here's, here's how you can answer that, honestly. Do you have any stories to tell? We are a generation without stories. These men come back. Could you imagine? We don't know. We don't get the full story. They come back and Joshua says, what happened? They said, well, first of all, we got into the land and we were at this prostitute's house. And Joshua's like, what? <laughs> now, hold on, hold on, hold on. And while we're there, the king of Jericho comes and she actually hides us. And we didn't know if she was gonna, I mean, there, we were up there praying and we didn't know if she was gonna, tell the king of Jericho on us and it might've been the end of it and she doesn't. And again, then afterwards she comes up and Joshua, I'm embarrassed to tell you this. We were, didn't share about God with her. She asked us. And she heard about what happened at the Red Sea and, and, and she gave her life to the Lord. And, we, and she actually cares about her family. And so when we go back, we gotta watch for this scarlet rope and we're gonna, we're gonna actually take care of her whole family. See, they have a story to tell. How many of us, we have zero stories to tell of our lives, right? The only stories we tell are we tell the stories of the shows we've watched. We tell stories of the vacations we take. I think it's one of the reasons we take a vacation. It's like, I need something to do and something to tell other people I did. <laughs> Honey, let's go spend a lot of money real quick. Let's go somewhere and come back and tell everyone what we did when we were laying out at the beach, right? It's just like, or I've watched in my own life. It's like, this last week, what was I most excited about? The Vic specials at Harris Teeter. <laughs> What's happened to my soul? Ribeye was half off. I was so excited. I was telling everyone. Guys, we are a generation that doesn't have any stories anymore. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was, I was uh, on a Zoom call with the founder of AIM. Uh, it stands for Agape International Ministries. And uh, we're on the Zoom call. He's on a television. I'm on the other side of the room. And uh, they ended up being a Hold the Rope ministry partner. We actually were able to, because of your generosity, give them $50,000. And listen, here's why. You'll clap even more when you hear what they do. And so what happened is I'm on the phone call with them. And, and I, you know me, I'm, I, lo I love to talk. You know, I usually talk too much, if anything. 
Uh, I hardly said any words because he had so many stories to tell. So he's sitting on the other end of the call, and I said, well, tell me about AIM. He said, well, it started about 20 years ago, he said, when my wife and I heard that there was sex trafficking in Cambodia, and so we got on a plane to go see what it was all about and if we could help. I thought, story, right? He tells the whole story of that. He said, the problem was we got back on the plane afterwards. He said, it was so dark, and the things we saw were so horrendous, and the living conditions there were so terrible that when we finally got on the plane, my wife said, I never want to go back there again in my whole life. He said, we got home. We just felt the Holy Spirit lay on our hearts that we need to go back. We ended up living there for 15 years. I thought, story. He said, it was so hard. The first two years, I had to get my wife a personal security guard. I thought, what are all the stories associated with that? He said, well, anyway, we find out that all the girls that are sex trafficked, they're sold by their families and lied to. Or they're, or they're kidnapped, and almost all these girls are 8 to 12 years old. And they're, you know, not to be too graphic here, but they're sexually abused, you know, multiple times a day, every day of their lives. And so he said, we had to do something. So he said, basically, what we did is we created a SWAT team for Jesus. Okay? He said there was one church that they needed to raise money for, to help the SWAT team. So the pastor, and I may do this one day, so get ready. The pastor get up here and he said, we're doing a special offering this month. It's called Bullets for Jesus. This, this could work in North Carolina, okay? <laughs> he said, it's called Bullets for Jesus. He said, we need, we need vests, we need guns, we need ammo, and we need to pay for the SWAT team. And the church gave abundantly. And they were able to fund this. And the SWAT team goes in and they rescue these girls, eight to 12 years old, out of this brothel. I thought, how many stories are there there? And then they prosecute the men who are leading the brothels. And then, by the way, that's the going spirit, going and getting the girls. Then they bring the girls back to a safe place where each girl, every four girls gets a mom. That's the welcoming spirit. It takes both spirits to do these risks. And all the girls can do at first is draw pictures of what happened to them. And he said, if you see the pictures, you'll just cry. And they can't process it. So they lead them to Christ, they disciple them, they give them jobs, they grow up. He said, and for certain women, if they're mentally, emotionally, spiritually ready, we send them as spies back to the brothels. They don't do anything in the brothel. They go to the brothel and they say, I'm interested in working for you. I wanna know how you do it. And, he, and they said, the guys running the brothels are all too willing to give them a full tour of the brothel where they then take notes, go back to the SWAT team, and the SWAT team goes and gets them all. And I'm sitting there on this call going, I am a little boy. <laughs> I have never done anything significant in my life. Guys, we want to be a conversion community, and a conversion community is a place where stories are told. It's a place where we can't even show all the videos of all the stories of all the ways the gospel's going forward. Amen. And so... Would you take personal risks to bring Christ to every relationship? For some of you, and women, I'll ask you to lead on this. Would you, would you lead in the welcoming risk? Would you say, could, could we have one time a month, one meal a month, could we have someone in our home who's far from God and close to us? And all of us, could we, could we do the going risk? You know, years ago, I read a book called Walk Across the Room. It's my favorite book ever on evangelism. 
And it's written by this pastor. He was just a very gifted pastor, but he was actually, more than that, he was a really gifted evangelist. And I just, you read the book, literally, you re, I encourage you to go get the book. You, you read the book and you go, these, can all these stories be true? Like every chapter is a story of him walking across the room. Like chapter, like I can't remember what chapter it is. Like one of the chapters is like, hey, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in the room and I'm at this business event and I see a guy and he looks like he's not doing well and I felt the Holy Spirit say, I walk across the room. And I go over there and I realize he had a moral failure recently. And I tell him how Jesus loves to save people who are in moral failures. And he gives his life to Christ. I'm like, he, what? And he's like, yeah, I was in the cab because they didn't have Uber back then. You know, he's like, I'm in the cab and we're going to this event. And I tell the guy that, you know, like what God did in my life. And he says, you know, well, God will never save a piece of junk like me. And he said, oh, I'm gonna walk across the room. I'm gonna tell him the truth. He goes, I led my taxi driver to Christ. I'm like, what? Where do you need to walk across the room tomorrow? What decisions do you need to make? Jesus Christ did not sacrifice for you and for me to play it safe. The resurrection, by the way, guys, is the great hope we have to take risk. Because the number one rule on taking risk is always take a risk where the upside's better than the downside. Well, I think that's every risk for Christ. Okay, the downside of trying to reach out to your neighbors, they think you're weird. The upside, they're in heaven. I think the upside's a little bit bigger than the downside. And here's what I want you to know as a church, and I mean this, we are behind you guys. The first week I was doing ministry at Duke University, I got in trouble with the administration. That's not fun. When you get an email from an official, you know, person on the Duke administrative staff and they email you, it's scary. It was my first week on the job. I was working for the church. I went back to my pastor and I said, I am so sorry. I, I might be getting kicked off Duke's campus. And he said, don't ever apologize for sharing the gospel. We are gonna stand behind you and we are for you. And what I want you to know is we are behind you guys. As you're scared to say something at work or you're scared to say something with your family, this whole service is designed to encourage you. The prayers we pray, the word we look at, the songs we sing, I want us to be a risk-taking church. And so I wanna solidify this in prayer that we would be a church that takes personal risks to bring Christ to every relationship. Let's pray. Lord, I just lift up right now the men and women in this church and I pray over them, the going riskful spirit, Lord, that, it, that doesn't necessarily mean crossing an ocean and learning a language. That's, that's the picture of the missionary going, but it might mean making a phone call. It might mean asking a spiritual question. Lord, I pray for many women, especially in this room, to lead in the welcoming spirit of risk. For some, they've been wrestling and praying through foster care and adoption, and they need to take their next step. For others, it's just, they need to open their home to someone in their neighborhood or someone in their workplace. And Lord, when we see so many stories, the story of the conversion of Rahab, her salvation comes because actually she took risks and the spies took risks, Lord. Together, may we do the same. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.